Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a galactic football league novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. I have some big, 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 big news in the world of the GFL. I was rolling along. There I was, minding my own business, rolling along through GFL Book 7's second draft, which was trending toward 225,000 words, when I realized there was a part near the middle of the book that should not be the middle. It was a major climax moment all on its own. Yes, you may snicker about major climax moment. It's a literary phrase. Deal with it. I felt I needed to do a better job of building up to that awesome moment making it resonate, and then giving you the proper denouement to resolve the plot threads, the emotions involved, and to better escort you into the next phase of the GFL saga. Now, you may be asking yourself, FTO, you just threw out a lot of fancy words. What does it all mean? It means, Junkie, that the GFL series is no longer eight books long. It will now be nine books long. The second draft of GFL Book 7 is trending toward 125,000 words, which is still, a that's a very big book. If all goes well, I will be done with that second draft and send it off to Big John Viscara for review by the end of November 2021. If that happens, I will be working on The Crypt Book 1 this December. Woohoo, doggies! So, This is obviously good news. Most people are very happy to hear they're going to be getting even more GFL than they thought. The series, it keeps swelling up like a tick. It's just getting there, getting big. That's my awesome news for the day. Let's get you caught up on the Stone Wolves story so far, and then we're all going to go to the front lawn and play some jarts. Previously on The Stone Wolves. Killian's old comrade, Fanaka, came aboard the Oleron, and within hours, the ship found itself in a firefight with vessels owned by the Ponsky sisters. The Oleron suffered damage, but thanks to a clever trick by new crew member Aya Omiata, the ship managed to escape into the void. Chapter 7 The Rumpus Room Aya was in her quarters. She was still shaking from fear. She thought she'd hit it well from the rest of the crew, and from that Fanaka woman. It was hard enough being the newbie in the crew. Aya didn't want them thinking she wasn't calm under pressure. It was one thing to seem cool, another to be cool. Getting shot at, for the second time, by the Ponsky sisters' modified haulers, that was almost as nerve-wracking 
as the insane maneuver Skipper had done. The Ulrin's belly had actually hit another ship. There was no way of knowing what kind of damage the Ulrin's hull had experienced until they came out of punch space and Beans' Schmeck crawled out to check. All ship systems were in the green, so it was most likely superficial damage to the port side, with the external holes between holds 6, 5, and 4. But even if it was superficial damage, it was still enough to make Aya tremble. At the speed of impact, if the Oleron had been even a few centimeters lower, the ship would have been torn apart. Skipper had been drinking. The old man was always drinking. When Beans had taken the Oleron into punch space, Skipper had pulled out a small bucket from beneath his captain's chair and thrown up in it. Occasional motion sickness, he said, wrought on by punch-out or punch-in. The bridge had smelled like vomit and beer. He told everyone to take a break. The trip to Lopu would take several hours. To say her quarters were spacious was an overstatement, at least by the standards of a working cargo ship. They were meant for the ship's XO, second in size only to the captain's quarters. Skipper didn't use the captain's quarters. That room was locked up tight. Zan knew what was in there, I supposed, and probably Beans, since he'd built the ridiculous, complex, bulky lock on the door. They knew, yet Aya did not. Perhaps she still needed to earn everyone's trust, if such a thing could be done, which she doubted. Then again, Zan had given Aya full credit for using the spaceport scanners to detect the incoming Ponsky sisters' ships. That seemed genuine, as genuine as a voice from a schmeck could seem, and Skipper had praised Aya for the point defense hack that had probably saved the Ulrun and everyone aboard. Aya had done that. She'd saved everyone. It was a good feeling. A whole lot better than the feeling that came from plotting intricate assassination attempts. Saving lives felt better than taking them. Still, one of the Ponsky sisters' ships had broken up. The pilot had undoubtedly died. Aya had done that, too. One more death on her conscience. But it had been self-defense, right? Too much to think about right now. She needed to calm down to forget how close to death she'd just come. At first, Aya hadn't believed the spacious XO's quarters were really hers. For the first month, she'd kept her one bag of clothing packed and ready to go. Only after she understood that Zan had an entire cargo hold to herself, and that Skipper actually preferred a cabin that, for his size, was downright tiny, and that Beans just kind of slept wherever he was when he was tired, did I accept that, yes, this place was hers. For as long as she wanted it. Or so Skipper claimed. In the last two weeks, she'd only just begun to make it her own. She'd strung biolites along the ceiling, a gift from Beans, who had found them in a junkyard and cultivated the bioluminescent bacteria to make them glow. A holotank was bolted to an empty frame where an ancient flat-panel monitor had once been. A little disconcerting to realize this ship was so old that flat panels, actual archaic flat panels, were original equipment. She'd used that bracket for her radcast gear. 
She'd put up a few paper posters. She didn't trust Holo Images, and she knew better than anyone that those could be hacked and turned into listening devices. Of some of her favorite things, the Scrag Band Bifurcated Iron, an image of an extinct Earth animal known as a polar bear, a commemorative image of the Hitoni Hullwalker's three-peat GFL titles. Her dad had been a Hitoni fan, which made her a Hitoni fan by default, but the walkers had sucked void for a long time. Hell, they'd even been relegated two seasons ago. But now, she had a new team. Skipper had seen her Hullwalker's poster and teased her about it, saying she didn't need to like a team just because her father had. Skipper had given her a welcome to the crew present, a poster of Ionath Kraken's quarterback, Quentin Barnes. Beans was crazy for the Krakens. He idolized Ionath's backup quarterback, Zach Goldsteiner, maybe Goldberg, something like that. Beans actually worshipped the man, like a god. Beans was so weird. Skipper also loved the Krakens, which made it easy for Aya to get behind the team. Cheering for Ionath was a way for her to fit in with her new family. But there was one more reason to dig the Krakens. Quentin Barnes was just so damned good-looking. And he had that bad boy thing going on. She'd read Yolanda Davenport's article on the man, the one titled, Something is Rotten in the GFL. The reporter had published some corrections about parts of the story, saying that Barnes wasn't such a bad guy after all. Maybe the corrections were genuine, maybe they weren't. But where there was smoke, there was fire. Governments and the media could cover up anything. Aya knew that better than anyone. Skipper looked a little like Barnes, which is why Aya assumed Skipper was such a fan of the quarterback. That and the whole purist nation connection. Both men were supposedly from that repressive cesspool of a state, although she'd learned that about Skipper only in passing. Zan had made a comment about it here or there. I supposed if there was some movie star that looked like her, she'd automatically be more interested in that person than some other random actress. That was human nature. The Oleron captain was good-looking, too, but he was so old, 50 or even older by her best guess. Barnes, on the other hand, had that face, that body, and he was only 24 years old, just a few years older than Aya. When she'd first come aboard the Oleron, she'd watched a live delay of the Krakens against the Buddha City elite. Barnes hadn't even played. Becca the Recca had been the INF quarterback for that game. There was some scuttlebutt about that, like Aya cared about the drama, with the Rekka playing ahead of that other Ionath quarterback, some League of Planets guy with an Orca skin job. Since that game, Aya had watched the next four regular season outings and the two playoff games, both of which the Krakens had won to reach the Galaxy Bowl. Beans complained nonstop that Goldberg, who Beans referred to as his milkiness, should have been the Kraken's starting quarterback. But Goldberg was out with an injury or something, and had been since the ninth week of the season. Beans couldn't find any info on the guy. I was getting tired of hearing Beans talk about it. Watching that first game had been a bit of magic, the first moment where Aya began to feel accepted by the crew. Sitting in the rumpus room, eating pizza, drinking beer, listening to Skipper and Beans scream at the holotank, it was fun. 
Beans and Skipper had gone crazy, whooping and hollering and laughing with every positive play for the Krakens, cursing out the refs on every penalty against the team. That excitement, that passion, it was infectious. So much so that by the following week's game against the Wabash Wolfpack, Aya was already a Krakens fan. Sure, it felt a little bandwagony to root for an undefeated defending Galaxy Bowl champion, but as they say, when on tower, swim like towerites do. The Oleron had been at Grinkus, punching out after the game's broadcast had already arrived at that system. Skipper had ordered Aya to shut down all comms and get the game signal without learning the score. Skipper was huge on no one spoiling the games for him. He wanted to experience the drama of watching them unfold as if in real time. She'd gotten the job done, then watch with Skipper and Beans as the Krakens visited the Wabash Wolfpack. Barnes threw a game-winning touchdown. Skipper lost his mind, dancing, shouting gibberish, spilling beer, and high-fiving Aya until her hand hurt. The week after that, the Oleron had wound up at Ionath. Skipper had left to attend to business. Aya and Beans had watched the game in the Rumpus Room's big holotank, a rare opportunity to see the game as it actually happened, not delayed due to light years of distance between the planets. Skipper didn't admit it, but Aya and Beans suspected he had actually gone to the game and seen it in person. The Krakens won, of course, finishing the regular season undefeated. Then, the playoffs. The Krakens crushed the Elite in the first round and easily beat the OS-1 orbiting death in the second, taking Ionath to the Galaxy Bowl for the second straight year. Despite the victory, Beans endlessly griped about his milkiness not being in the game or even on the sidelines. Wait, what time was it? What standard day? She couldn't remember. The Galaxy Bowl was already over. When the Oleron came out of punch space at Lopu, the news waves would be full of mentions of the game and the GFL championship team. The sport had become so popular, so very popular, like bigger than religious or government news, that it would be difficult to avoid hearing the final score. I have felt bad for Skipper. He didn't ask for much. Loyalty, honesty, and no spoilers of the Krakens games. That was about it. Well, hopefully, the Krakens had won, and Aya would get to watch more media interviews with that dreamy Quentin Barnes. She glanced at her radcast gear. It seemed to call to her, to mock her. You're way behind on your cast, and your fans will be worried. They missed Rara Avis, the queen of the dark waves, the empress of the freaks. They would have to wait a little longer. I had no intention of broadcasting while that bitch Fanaka was on board. Who was the woman? What did she want? Was she manipulating Skipper? The man was old, which meant he was probably manipulatable. Old people believed anything. That was how politicians stayed in power. Fanaka wasn't here for a social visit. She wanted Skipper, and by default his crew, to do something. Something dangerous, no doubt. Aya could find out about her, though. Upload a picture of Fanaka to the dark waves. Ask the freaks to find out who she was. So easy. 
Aya, or rather, Rara Avis, had done things like that a dozen times. Information was power, and Rara Avis had access to more information than most. It would be so easy. No one would know, not even Skipper. Aya shook her head. No, Skipper insisted that Fanaka was his guest. Aya wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for Skipper. He deserved trust. At least, for now. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. That was quite a bit of flying back there, Fanaka said. Killian nodded. Thanks. They were again walking down the corridor. Fanaka carried her duffel, the only thing she'd brought with her besides peaches. The watchbot scurried along ahead of them, circled behind, always exploring, hooked feet click-clicking on the corridor's metal deck. The Ponsky sisters wanted that case, Killian said, which means they wanted the data cube bad enough to come after us twice to get it. Why do they want it? Fanaka shrugged. How should I know? Maybe they don't want it. Maybe they want you. Probably pissed him off at some point. You're good at that. She knew damn well the sisters wanted it. Killian thought of telling her their operatives had asked for the case, specifically for the case, but he knew she would evade the question. Fanaka shared information when she was ready to share it, and not a moment before. The years apart didn't change who she was. She'd reveal her information, or at least some of it, when she made her pitch to the entire crew. She'd wanted to do that right away, but Killian had told Zan, Beans, and Aya 
to take a few hours off to rest up. The Oleron had come far too close to destruction. The crew needed a moment to breathe. Your maneuver at the port was almost as good as what Redwire would have done, Fanaka said. Except Redwire wouldn't have bottomed out. There was truth to that. Redwire was the best non-Hurrah combat pilot Killian had ever seen. And Redwire probably wouldn't have bottomed out because Redwire's reactions wouldn't have been slowed by Nasdor. Halfway down the corridor, Killian stopped at a hatch. This is where you'll berth. He opened up the bunk room. When he did, dust and bits of peeled paint fell to the floor, a light rain of misuse. Four metal bunks were bolted to the walls, all covered with a thin sheen of dust. Classy, Fanaka said. How long has it been since you opened this room? Killian shrugged. A few years, maybe. A few decades was more like it. How many other bunk rooms are there? Four, Killian said. None in use. We keep them closed tight. Saves on heating and cooling. Fanaka stepped in, looked around. I get the whole cabin. You see anyone else here? It's bigger than your quarters. She tossed her small duffel bag into the room, completely unmindful of where it landed. It, too, kicked up a small cloud of dust. Nice, she said. Real, tidy place you've got here, killer. A soldier like you cares about a little dirt? Fanaka grinned. I won't care about it at all if you come visit me here tonight. Your room seems a bit cramped. In here, we've got four beds to choose from. She wasn't wasting any time. Some things never changed. Fanaka had no problem mixing business with pleasure. If we do this mission, your crew, Killian said. No fraternization among the crew on the Oleron. Fanaka huffed. Oh, like you're not tapping that sweet piece of amethyst? A touch of anger flared up through Killian's Nasdor haze. Aya is young enough to be my daughter. In truth, his daughter, if his daughter was still alive, which he doubted, was twelve years older than Aya. From the looks of how slow you age, Fanaka said, I'm probably old enough to be your daughter. Or maybe your granddaughter. That never stopped you from enjoying me. The comment hit hard. Killian had difficulty remembering just how old he was. And, based on the math, Fanaka was right. No fraternizing, he repeated. We'll see about that. Especially if you really aren't tapping that little gem. Fanaka was going to continue to poke at him. He wanted to change the subject. How about you, Hopscotch? You have any kids? Thirty-seven years had gone by, after all. She glanced off. Yeah, two boys. Bolin's sixteen. Oktai is ten. And a spouse? Fanaka was silent for a moment, as if Killian's words had hit a pause button. Her mouth moved slightly, lips twitching. His name was Tuan, she said. Was. Gone? Fanaka nodded. 
two months ago. So recent. Yet here she was, coming on to Killian. Well, who was he to judge? He'd abandoned his own family, hadn't he? And Fanaka had been a soldier. No, was still a soldier. Soldiers accept death and move on, knowing how short life is and how few and far between moments of happiness are, knowing they could be the next piece of cold meat on the slab. Sorry to hear that, Killian said. Was his death uh, guild-related? Her mouth twitched again. She'd been chipper, engaging and teasing, but now the darkness within her seemed to roil, to rear its head like a hibernating monster just stirring awake. Yeah, she said. Thirty-seven years couldn't erase who she was. She would make sure whoever had killed Tuan would pay, if that sentient wasn't dead already. Back to the tour, Killian said, eager to change the subject. Only a few things left to show you. Then I can talk to your crew? Then you can take a break. You'll talk to the crew soon enough. He showed her the med bay, probably the cleanest place in the ship. He'd made many modifications over the years, pulling out the four hospital beds and replacing them with a rejuve tank, installing holo tanks to replace the flat panel monitors. He'd left the monitor brackets, though, a memento of the times he'd lain in those removed beds, of the times he'd watched crew members draw their last breaths in them. He showed her the galley. There had been more tables once, but he'd traded all but two for some fuel when he'd been low on funds. Besides, the crew rarely ate in the galley. That's all there is to see, he said, except for the rumpus room. And the engine room. And the punch drive section. And hold two. And the actual captain's cabin. And the quarters of Aya and Beans. None of those are any of your business. Yeah, you showed me all there is to see, Fanaka said. No secrets from a person you fought and killed with, right? That was a lifetime ago. It was for Finter and Vidan, at least. She knew how to hurt him. So easily. That, too, hadn't changed with time. Fanaka forced an apologetic smile. Sorry, that was out of line. Are you going to show me this rumpus room? He wanted to say something clever, to cut her the way she'd just cut him, but the Nazdor seemed to dim his wit just like it dimmed his anger. High one, did he need to lie down? You'll see it in two hours, Killian said. I'll walk you back to your quarters. You and Peaches can stay there until it's time to talk to the crew. She huffed, stared at him. You're locking me in? Are you serious? Very, he said. You're too good at what you do, Fanaka. I know I can't just trust you to not snoop around. Make sure that Peaches is always with you while you're aboard. I need your word. She glared, sighed, tilted her head left, then right. Knowing me, or at least the me you used to know, I suppose that's fair, she said. All right, you have my word that Peaches will stay with me. They walked back the way they had come. Vanaka slipped her hand into the crook of Killian's elbow. 
He gently removed her hand and let it drop. She sighed, bored. He ignored her and tried, hard, to also ignore the thrill that had shot through him when she touched him so briefly. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.